No doubt you have heard rumors that there once existed in the distant past a race of giants who roamed the earth. This is the eighth episode of our season on unsolved Jewish mysteries here at Jew I Don't Know. We've been on the hunt for missing relics, for unanswered questions from Jewish history, for texts and lost tribes and man-made monsters. Today we're going back further than we have before to look at a mystery that persists to this day. Various ancient cultures refer to these giants, usually that they are some kind of warrior clan, and so too does the Jewish tradition. They are called the Rephaim. It may also be that these Rephaim are representatives of dead kings of the underworld, kind of like the Nazgul from the Lord of the Rings. And it's also possible, just maybe, that we have found one of their ancient lairs in Israel. So that's today's episode. I'm your host, Jason Harris. Let's talk about giants. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Okay, but first things first, it's been an exciting week here at Jew I Don't Know. You know, I started this podcast a couple years ago, literally in a cabin in the woods of Northern California. I sketched out about 20 episodes that would cover the entire history of Judaism and recorded the first few in that cabin. I figured my parents would listen, maybe a couple super nerdy birthright participants. I'd do it for a few months just to experiment with this whole podcast medium, and then I'd move on to something else. Well, today you're listening to the 66th episode, and don't worry, I have loads more sketched out down the line. And earlier this week, Jew I Don't Know made it to the big time, I guess, with a mention in the New York Times. It's incredible. A reporter there was writing an article on Birthright, reached out to me as a source, and I ended up getting quoted in the piece and served as background on some other stuff. The article has definitely generated some controversy, but overall, I found it to be fair, accurate, and worthy of consideration. You can find the link to it in the press section of my website, jewautonote.com. But anyway, the New York Times. I can't believe it. So thanks to all of you for listening. I do read all the emails you send me and the various historical stuff you send me too, even if it takes me forever to get back to you. I'm trying to get better. Anyway, I really appreciate all your comments and please, please, please keep telling everyone you know to listen. And if you feel so moved, go ahead and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Even just giving it a five-star rating helps out. But okay, enough self-promotion. Let's get back to the race of giants. We get introduced to the Rephaim very early in the Jewish story, in chapter 14 of the book of Genesis. They are one of the non-Jewish tribes inhabiting the land of Canaan, in which Abraham and his family have just settled, and it's clear that they are engaged in warfare with the neighboring tribes. The book of Deuteronomy later goes into more detail. It's where we learn that the Rephaim are large and tall or numerous, and from this description, Jewish tradition comes to understand them as a race of giants. And actually, a couple of other non-Jewish sources and Semitic languages, like the Phoenicians, also make references to these giant people. They were known by a few different names in the Bible, and are recorded as living east of the Jordan River, basically between today's Damascus and the southern end of the Dead Sea, down through Jordan. So on the one hand, the Rephaim were these non-Jewish giants who lived as a tribe in the land of Canaan during the time of the Jewish forefathers and mothers. But the Hebrew Bible also uses the same name, Rephaim, to refer to a kind of spirit being from the underworld. 
Various books, like Isaiah and Proverbs and Job, translate the word Raphaim as shades, in which these shades populate the underworld and act as spirits of the dead, capable of interacting with humans in some way. It's not necessarily nefarious, like you might think. The root word for Raphaim, Rafa, means to heal. The word for doctors in Hebrew is Rophim, so it's possible that there's a connection there. And here too, not just Jewish sources, but other nearby Semitic languages reference the Raphaim as connected to dead spirits. Now, whether the Raphaim were a tribe of giants or some kind of underworld spirit, or both, we get a more detailed description when it comes time for Moses and the Israelites to conquer and overthrow the Canaanites in order to settle the promised land for themselves. As I mentioned back in the episode on the Ten Tribes, the archaeological evidence strongly supports a different process, in which the Israelites conquered Canaan not by warfare, but by a gradual assimilation. But whatever, let's stick with the biblical account for now. As the Israelites completed their 40 years of desert wandering and began closing in on the Promised Land, Moses led them in a series of battles against the various tribes inhabiting the regions that lay on the approach to Canaan. One of those battles was at a place called Edrei against the local Amorite king, whose name was Og. His territory was located around what is today southern Syria and northern Jordan, where both those countries intersect the Golan Heights in Israel. The city of Edrei still exists. It's called Dara today, and it was ground zero for the Syrian civil war that began in 2001. It was there that rebels kicked off their protests against the Syrian government. The Hebrew Bible records King Og as the last of the Rephaim and they bolster that claim by describing, of all things, his bed. Made of iron, it is reported to be about 13 and a half feet long and 6 feet wide, which would suggest that King Og was, you know, relative to that size. In other words, a giant. The Book of Amos, which doesn't mention him specifically, but seems to be describing this battle, describes him as tall as a cedar tree. Now, I'm not sure really like how much proof can be gleaned from his bed size. I mean, I have a queen mattress and there are parts of it I've never been to. So maybe he just liked having a large bed. On the other hand, why would the Torah mention, of all things, the size of a particular king's bed if that detail wasn't somehow important? Some suggest that it was a reference to his tomb, in which bed can be understood as his final resting place, which will get interesting in just a moment. As for the larger theological significance of bed size, I'll leave that up to the rabbis. Anyway, King Og attacks the Israelites, but led by Moses and, of course, God, the Israelites defeat his army, kill Og, destroy all 60 cities in his territory, and kill every last Amorite, making a point to mention that this includes all men, women, and children. Not great. But the point here is that it seems the Rephaim, the race of giant warriors from deep in ancient times, thus came to an end with the slaying of King Og. Okay, so ancient giants, underworld spirits of the dead, Moses bragging about genocide. What's the unsolved Jewish mystery here? What's the point? The point is this. Stonehenge. No, no. Not the Stonehenge we all know in England. A different Stonehenge. Another circular formation of giant stones dating to around the same time, the 3rd millennium BCE, and located in Israel. Stonehenge in Israel. Wait, what? Come on, there's a Stonehenge in Israel? I've never heard of it, you're saying. How could that be? And the answer, obviously, is that the anti-Semites don't want you to know that we have it. 
No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Part of the answer is that it's not as dramatic as the one in England. It's hard to see from the ground level. It's also hard to get to. It's in the middle of nowhere and you have to hike out to it. I've never even been there. It's also not called Stonehenge, but instead Gilgal Rephaim. And there's that word again, Rephaim. So maybe I'm going somewhere with all this giant's talk. Hang with me. In 1967, during the Six-Day War, Israel captured the Golan Heights, a mountain ridge above the Sea of Galilee that the Syrians used as a military platform to attack northern Israel. It was sparsely inhabited, a few scattered villages and Syrian military bases, but not much else. A year later, while conducting surveys all over the heights, a team of Israeli archaeologists discovered a most incredible site. Nearly 40,000 tons of basalt stones arranged in five circles, adding up to about three meters tall. In the center is a structure about five meters tall. The complex is over 150 meters in diameter, is connected to walls 10 feet thick, has flooring and two openings like doorways through the outer circle. It was originally probably a bit taller and larger. From the air, it looks like a giant bullseye. Or for you capitalist millennials out there, a huge sign for Target. You can see it on Google Maps. I've got a link up on the website. The Israelis called the site Gilgal Rephaim, which means Wheel of Giants. The Israelis said, hey, this place is in close proximity to the biblical territory of the Rephaim and right next to King Og's kingdom. And someone must have had the strength to move tens of thousands of stones to create this place, so why not the giants of ancient lore? I mean, it makes sense to me. And it might also be the case that the Israeli archaeologists are bringing full circle the original legend as created by the ancient Israelites. It's possible that the ancient Israelites also came upon this place, also had no idea what it was or who built it, and said, hey, we have no idea how someone could have built this place, but we're pretty close to the territory of the Rephaim and King Og, so maybe those guys were giants. That would explain how this ended up here. We should write this down. And so the legend was born. But let's really go out on a limb for a moment, like wild speculation here. And let's say, hypothetically speaking, of course, that biblical giant warriors did not actually build this site. So then who did, why, and when? What do the Debbie Downers, you know, like the scientists, say about the actual facts of this place? Well, first of all, as with the pyramids and Stonehenge and the Nazca lines in Peru, archaeologists outright dismiss any suggestion that the place was built by the aliens. I told you, these people are no fun. Beyond that, though, no definitive answer has been settled on. Hence today's Unsolved Mystery. So first, when was Gilgal Rephaim built? Archaeologists speculate that different parts of it may have been built at different times, but it seems that construction started around 3500 BCE. That means it was built a thousand years before the Great Pyramid at Giza, and is roughly the same age, or even a bit older than Stonehenge itself. It's pretty incredible. It seems clear that at some point the site was used as a burial ground. The structure at the center of the concentric rings is built like a tomb, clearly for someone or someones of great significance, like King Og. Unfortunately, no gigantor skeletons were found. No skeletons of any kind were found. Sometime in the last 5,000 years, grave robbers heisted whatever weapons and jewelry would have accompanied the body in the tomb. But one of the robbers, hastening out the front door with his arms full of fresh loot, dropped a single copper pin on the floor. 
And there it lay for thousands of years until an Israeli archaeologist picked it up in 2010. That pin helped to confirm that the central structure was indeed a tomb. But the problem is that the tomb was built a thousand years after the original construction of Gilgal, meaning that the site's original purposes was not as a tomb. That part was added on later. So another theory is that before it was a tomb, it was used as a kind of open-air cemetery known as a sky burial. It's a place where dead bodies were placed in the open for the vultures. The problem is that, again, no bones of any kind were ever found, nor any other material, whether coins or pottery, that would help clue into its usage. That leaves us trying to make sense of what we've got, which is to say, the stones and the shape. Some theorize that Gilgal was an astronomical observatory. Jewish tradition generally frowned on any form of star worship, and Moses warned the Israelites not to engage in it. So if Gilgal Raphaim was known to the Israelites as a place for worshipping the heavens, that might explain why they associated it with the evil race of giants whom they defeated in battle. We defeated their king, supplanted the Canaanites, and replaced their star worshipping too. But, eh, as far as theories go, this one's a little thin. But closely related to its use for stargazing might be as a seasonal calendar. At least one of the openings in the outer circle aligns with the summer equinox, on the longest day of the year in June, the sun rises through the opening, and also apparently through the opening to the central tomb. But it's not an exact alignment, and it's unclear whether the same phenomenon is repeated during the December equinox. But archaeologists have found other markings, which some suggest could be references to the equinox. Another theory, also closely related, is that it was a ritual center, a gathering place for people to worship gods related to important agricultural functions like the seasonal harvest. That's another explanation for the openings that seem to closely align with the solstices. Like at Stonehenge in England, people came for ceremonies celebrating new harvests and to thank the gods for ensuring productive agricultural land. All of these theories have supporting evidence and all of them have holes. If Gilgal Raphaim began as a ritualistic center based on the solstices, that probably ceased after the central tomb was built because that structure seems to block the sunrises. But some archaeologists argue that the tomb was built at the same time as the rest of the site, meaning that it was a tomb from the start, and only maybe later, or maybe not ever, was a ritual center, or a place based on the calendar. We know the tomb is real, we know the construction is real, but we don't know when it was all built, and in what order, or for what purpose. Whatever the reason, it's clear that this huge structure was built for a purpose, and by people who were determined to do it, and to have it be seen and visited. And that's another strange feature. The level of planning and organization required to create the structure, plus the need to collect and transport all the stones, plus the expense of doing so, it all would have required a huge support network and a reasonably prosperous society. One Israeli archaeologist estimated that 100 laborers working every day would have taken 25 years to build it. So this was no small thing. But the problem is that what we know of the people living there 5,000 years ago is that they were mostly nomadic. To the extent that there were permanent settlements in the area, they probably would have had just a few families each. So we know it wasn't the Israelites who built it. It was way earlier than that. It was probably even earlier than the Canaanites, since the earliest archaeological references we have to those people still dates to at least 1,000 years after Gilgal Raphaim was built. In Arabic, the place is called Rujim al-Hiri, 
which means stone heap of the wildcat, which doesn't help us too much to figure it out. So who was it? No one has any idea. Whoever they were left no trace, no inscriptions, no leftover fire pits with clues to their diet, no bones, no nothing. Whatever artifacts there ever were there were long ago taken away. Like Stonehenge, its origins remain obscured in mystery. I, for one, am sticking to my theory. It was giant aliens. So as I mentioned, there are reasons why Gilgal Raphaim is not a major tourist attraction. As I said, it's not as dramatic close-up as Stonehenge. From the ground level, it looks like piles of stones. It's really only from above that you can see how incredible the design is. It's also in what classifies as the middle of nowhere for Israel. Up in the Golan Heights, close to the border with Syria, and so surrounded by Israeli military bases, which can restrict access to the area. Also minefields left over from the various wars fought up there. The nearest road is about an hour's hike from the site. And some allege that the Israeli government just isn't that interested in investing in Gilgal Raphaim as a tourist site. Given that it's not an ancient Jewish site, and therefore doesn't speak to the Jewish connection to the land, the government prefers to invest in the maintenance and promotion of specifically Jewish sites in the Golan Heights, like some ancient synagogues located nearby. In any case, Gilgal Raphaim is high on my list of places to visit the next time I'm in Israel, although I'd really prefer to avoid the minefields. Okay, a little bit shorter episode for you this week. Decided to spare you from too much esoteric long-windedness about Rephaim, spirits, and giants from me. So, next episode, back to the present day, and a Jewish archive discovered in the basement of Iraqi intelligence headquarters after the American invasion in 2003. Like with the Schneerson collection from a bunch of episodes ago, we know exactly where it is and who has it. They're not giving it back. This time it's not Russia. It's the United States, and it's a foreign policy mess. So that's next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahit throats. See you later. Thank you.